Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I am joined today by none other than Scott McKnight. He is professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. He is the author of more than 80 books, including the award-winning The Jesus Creed, The King Jesus Gospel, Kingdom Conspiracy, and recently, which is the topic of today's conversation, Revelation for the Rest of Us, which is subtitled A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. Scott, thanks for joining us. Doug, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I am too. Your subtitle is really what caught my attention. <laughs> In biblical studies, the idea of a prophetic voice has been around for a couple decades, and I think there are a lot of Christians who want to speak truth to power, speak truth to culture, and that includes speaking truth to other Christians who are engaged in what we might call just going along with whatever the regime has for us. And when your subtitle says a prophetic call to follow Jesus, and that's what the book of Revelation is in part about, then of course I'm going to snatch that book right up off of Amazon. I guess I can't snatch it on Amazon. I'm going to purchase it. I'm going to one-click it on Amazon, and I'm going to buy it. And I really enjoyed it. So I want to start by asking you, why this book and why now? Well, yeah, why now? That's a big question. Well, I'm a professor, you know. This is what we do. We teach and we write. So that's a big <laughs> part of this. But for a long time, and early in my Christian development, as a high schooler, I became fascinated by the book of Revelation. And my life has gone through different phases where I was obsessed by it. I read everything about it. Then I put it aside for a decade. And then I came back to it a little bit. Then I put it aside. And it was never a part of much of my teaching career, maybe a day at the end of a semester, if I still had time left in the schedule. At one time I taught, I think it was two lectures on it every time I taught a certain course. But by and large, I've, I haven't been able to. But over the years, my mind shifted away from speculation and sort of the late great planet Earth of Hal mm -hmm. Lindsey. Yeah. Toward my first shift was toward what's called the post trib rapture, which I thought was really radical on my part. And I <laughs> found out that a lot of people thought I was almost liberal for believing that, which <laughs> really seems crazy. But then I read Jewish apocalyptic literature in my PhD days and read through every one of the major texts that were available. And since then, I've read them several times. Since then, I read lots of literature on apocalyptic, and I realized my mind had shifted, but I wasn't teaching a course about it. So I didn't need to put it together for anything in a formal way. And a few years ago, I decided I wanted to put these ideas together. And I taught a course with Cody Matchett in the classroom. And then the next thing you know, I felt like we had something to say at the book level, mm. and we put this together. So, revelation for the rest of us. That's and great. And the shifts, Doug, for me were from, let's say, pre-trib kind of mm -hmm. pretty populist Hal Lindsey kind of thing, Salem Kerban. Most people don't know who that is. And then it was post-trib, and then I became classified, I guess, as a preterist, but I began to see the book more about discipleship and discernment of, let's say, the political powers 
mm-hmm. than any kind of time scheme. So I don't like to be called a preterist or even an idealist because I think that all puts, it's all framing things by how the time works out in Revelation. I think as apocalyptic literature, that's not the best way to frame it. Well, that's a very biblical theology way of approaching the text, of course. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is good. Just a little bit of nerding out. Do you remember in the late 90s, there was this book by this guy who was talking about the pre-wrath rapture, and it was sort of like not quite in the middle of the tribulation, but it was like near the second half of the last third or some crazy numbering like that? I do remember it. And there was a guy named S.I. McMillan who wrote a book similar to that when I was in, in my college days called Discern These Times. Mm. And so I kind of knew about the pre-wrath. Just whenever you start seeing the wrath of God poured out on the world, then you got to get the church out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. That was sort of the driving factor there. Yeah. For sure. Well, so talking about how we approach the book of Revelation, for people today, a lot of times we just think of it as like, well, that's a book about the future and what we can look forward to and how we can hope and how God's going to sort of wrap things up, right? Yeah. Maybe not necessarily rapture things up, but how God's going to sort of (laughs) (laughs) figure this all out and be the winner, as we might say. What is wrongheaded about that? Is it a matter of simply saying, well, that's not the kind of book this is? Or is it a matter of like, well, that doesn't really apply to us except for some future distant time? Well, that frames everything as if the book of Revelation is entirely a prophecy about the future. And until it all comes to pass, none of it is coming to pass. Hmm. And I think that's a mistake. Apocalyptic literature works for people who are mostly oppressed They write this kind of literature as a way of symbolically and using metaphor and imagery and bizarre stuff and calling people names, the beasts and the dragon, and giving names to cities like Babylon for Rome. It's a way of describing God's perspective. So there's a real claim here in the book of Revelation. This is a divine perspective on the Roman Empire through the image of Babylon. And at the same time, it gives the divine perspective and the divine affirmation of the church, the people of Jesus, the people of God, who will someday be given a city and will be ushered into a city where justice and peace and love and wisdom will all be established and evil will be eliminated. So it's got utopia in it, but it is At the same time, it's very much a critique, entirely a critique of the Roman Empire for the sake of the Christians in Western Asia Minor so that they will know that God is going eventually to conquer the evil of this world. Talk about why it would be important to see John, the writer, as a dissident. Well, (laughs) to me, yes. I mean, right away in John, he says, I... John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I think John, the way I like to say it, Doug, is he had the courage to speak up and to speak out and therefore to speak into the Roman Empire's powers and structures. And he ends up in exile on the island of Patmos. Now, my co-writer at one point, Cody Matchett, wasn't sure that that was actual 
that he was in exile, but Patmos is an obscure little island out there. Mm -hmm. And the chances of him wanting to live out there are not very high. So I think John is a dissident. And well, because he was a dissident, he is in exile from the churches. And therefore, he has to write this letter, these letters, if you want to call them messages, and this apocalypse in order to communicate to the churches because there was no other way for him to do that. Yeah. You write in the book pretty early on that for us to read this, there involves a dual critique of the church and of empire. And I think it's pretty clear how this is a critique of empire if you read it this way. Or even if you don't read it in the specific way that you understand, you can still see it as like empire is bad, right? Yeah. How is it also a dual critique of the church? Well, Revelation chapters two through three are these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And in each one of these, John, basically, not everyone, John critiques something about the church. And I like to look at it as there's three or four categories that a person can use. One of them is that they have distorted teachings. And John is willing to use some pretty, pretty strong language for the problems in the churches. I mean, he likes to use the word adultery. And I mean, this is strong language in the ancient world. And John sees it's like an idolatry and adultery combined, which he connects to Balaam from Numbers 25. And then for him, there is very clear a distortion in their practices that they're not living the way they're supposed to be. They have inconsistent behaviors. And then he has a disordered love theme that he talks about, that their behaviors are off, their teachings are off, and they've lost their fire for Jesus. It's not real clear what, exactly what he means, that they've lost to Ephesus, mm -hmm. they've lost their first love. But I think it's, in Johannine writings anyway, it's love of God, love of others. And at some level, it's broken down. And John wants to castigate them for that. And if we study the, let's say, the passages in Revelation 2 through 3, and we see the sins, we begin to realize that these are the sins that sound like Revelation 17 through 19, which is the description of Babylon. So I, the way I like to look at it, and I think about it this way so much now that I'm not changing my mind, I tell my students, <laughs> and that is, it looks like Babylon creep, or it is, Bab is wrong beginning to impact the church in ways that is coercing or at least culturally shifting and forming mm -hmm. believers in Jesus to start living like the way of Rome mm -hmm. rather than the way of the Lamb. So that's why he's a double dissident. He critiques Babylon, but because he critiques Babylon, he has to critique Babylon in the church. Yeah. And our churches are just like this. I wrote a book with my daughter called A Church Called Tove, and we quoted David Brooks, who makes a pretty impressive statement to me that wherever we work, that culture has an ability to make us the kind of person that likes to work in that place. Mm -hmm. well, that's a pretty clever expression. I'm not quoting him exactly, and I think his is probably better. But the thing is, if you live in Rome or Babylon long enough, you begin to live like Babylon. And that's what John doesn't want happening in the church. 
Yeah, that's especially true when you have Babylon or Rome increasing the opulence and comfortability of its citizens or those within its borders. Yeah. And so when you can live that way, it's easy to it's easy to lose your first love. It's easy to become lukewarm. It's easy to, you know, it's all those different things. Yeah. There's two things that I really thought early on as I started reading your book that I was really excited to re-understand Revelation in a way, because I've put it away for 10 years or more, just like you said you did for a while. And I don't really have any, didn't have any really strong opinion about like, well, how should I read Revelation? I just kind of didn't discuss it other than a handful of passages or whatever. And there are two things that are early on that really stood out to me as super critical in terms of understanding it. One was that you encourage us to use our imagination and that revelation is visual and auditory engagement and that there's so much imagery. And if we can use our imaginations, there's auditory happening. There's all kinds of sensory experiences that are in the book of Revelation. And then the second piece of this, which is really helpful, of course, is the playbill which is who are the characters and what's happening here. And of course, you have the words wild thing as opposed to beast in there. So those are kind of two things that early on I felt were really useful in getting me started at understanding Revelation anew. Can you talk a little bit about the auditory or the visual and auditory engagement? You know, I've been kind of fascinated by this. And I'm fortunate to know some of the world's great scholars in, let's say, apocalyptic prophetic literature. And so I was able to ask some questions. But John, over and over, I think 60 times, says, I saw. All right, so he sees things. He does hear things. Not as often, but he does see things. And he does hear things. So those are the sorts of experiences that he's having. So I asked these two scholars, Europeans, I said, what do you think happened to John when he said he saw? And both of them immediately said, I think it was a visionary experience in his head. He could even have been asleep. So it's not like that he was in a room and all of a sudden all these things were dancing in front of him. It was more that he had this visionary experience. Well, I don't consider that even to be a debate. I mean, I I don't think it's crazy. I think it's very common. People who have visionary experiences often don't know whether they're awake or asleep. Sure. The second thing for me, though, is what really fascinated me was, so John sees these things, but how did he describe these things? And John's language, Doug, this is really amazing. John's language is so like the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, little Zechariah, little Jeremiah, you know, a lot of prophets, that what he sees He can only describe through the language that he had learned in the prophets. I don't think he necessarily was seeing the same things. He may have been. I don't think John thought these were all prophecies coming true. I think rather John didn't know how to describe these things apart from that prophetic language. But here's the stunning thing. There are, it just depends which scholar you ask, somewhere between 300 and 600 echoes of Old Testament passages in the book of Revelation, and John almost never quotes the Old Testament. Hmm. That is stunning. I mean, I grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist church where the older people in the church could talk biblical language and could use the King James Version for almost everything. I mean, I grew up 
praying in the King James Version, yeah. like my father. My father yeah, died here. at 91 years old, and he was still praying in the King James English. And this is John. John's experience is such that he cannot describe what he saw apart from using the Old Testament. But what he described was like the Old Testament. It wasn't just identical to the Old Testament. So this fascinates me, and it's his imagination. And I believe that he wants us, he'll say over and over in this book, look. He wants the readers to look, the listeners to look. This book was read at least seven times front to back to a congregation. And when that was done, they did not have their NIVs or whatever, their CEBs, whatever translation they had. They didn't have them in their laps listening to a sermon. Mm -hmm. They had to listen to it. And when they heard these things, their minds naturally went to the visions. I saw a dragon, a great fiery red dragon, enormous. Well, you're going to start thinking, what would that look like? What would a dragon look like? And its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. And it spews out a river after the woman in Revelation chapter 12. All these things, I saw a beast come out of the sea. And the word he uses, therion, is the Greek word for a wild animal. And I was going to use a wild animal, but I thought I'll use wild thing because that's like more a syndic where the wild things are. So John wants us to be carried by his language into the things that he's saying and hoping with his language to evoke in our brains the same thing that he had in his brain. And I find that without imagination, the book falls flat. And it's, now I'll tell you a story. I'm in college and Tim LaHaye writes his first commentary on Revelation. Most people don't know about this, I don't think, so long ago. And he had someone draw black and white just sketches of the figures that are described in Revelation. And I remember thinking, I thought it was hokey, but at the same time, cool. And at the same time, I think, no, that's not what's happening. <laughs> I don't want a sketch, a black and white sketch of this fiery red dragon. I need to be left alone for my mind to go where John wants me to go. And I think when we let that happen, we experience what John wants us to experience. The same thing when we read Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, we sort of have our own images of what these people look like. That once the movie comes out, destroys our imagination because it's no longer our imagination. But we think of Gandalf, whoever that guy was who acted for him on Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that kind of ruins the imagination level. So sure, that was a long answer. Sorry. No, no, it's good. I know that uh, one of the I grew up in very similar circumstances in my faith as you just described, including the type of church and the Bible we used. And I know that just before the vision, there's a I don't have the Bible in front of me, but I believe it's in God says, "Come up, I must show you what is soon to take place," and that is used often as a here is how we know that Revelation is about future events. And so I can imagine that that's probably a little bit of a hurdle for some to be like, well, wait a second. Isn't this about future things? Isn't this about what will soon take place? Now, we could talk about what soon means. Maybe I'm misquoting it. You seem to have it in front of you. I think it might be after the church's chapter. Well, it's 4-1. Yeah, that's it right. Actually, it doesn't actually say anything about the future directly. 
It says, come up here, ascend here, and I will show to you what is necessary to happen after these things. Okay. So after these things, that's the time limit, and that's sort of after what he's just told the churches, I would say. But that was the uh, come up here was when I was in. You may have heard this too, Doug. This was the rapture when I was in college. My teachers told me that. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm looking at the King. I pulled up the King James. Come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Okay, that's why that's sticking in my mind then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Doug, this is a really important question, and it's a good one, and it's, I don't think it takes that long to answer it, but a prophet in, this book is a prophecy at some level. Most people say it's a letter, it's a prophecy, and it's apocalyptic. I think that more often John describes it, he doesn't do this a lot, but he does say it's a prophecy. All right, a prophet in the ancient world was someone who was commissioned by God to speak to the people of God about their current situation with the warning or the promise that if they respond and repent, blessings will come. And if they choose not to repent and continue in their disobedience, divine judgment will come. That's what a prophet did. So John is speaking to his churches and saying, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. But he also says, if you do repent, you're going to, or you you start living the right way, you're going to see the judgment of God come upon this world because of the persecutions of these people or the opposition Mm. and so of Babylon. So to me, to think that all of this is, in a sense, it's future in a sense, of course, but it is not predicting, let's say, environmental catastrophes. And stars falling from the sky. You know, you can't throw a third of the stars in the sky onto the earth and there still be an earth. These stars are bigger than the earth, right? (laughs) Some are bigger than our solar system. (laughs) (laughs) So this isn't going to work. I mean, this is just scary language. It's a rhetoric that motivates people to take what John has to say more seriously and to live in light of what God has called us to do. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started, and because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get... 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50, and you will get 50% off your first order. 
if you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. So obviously, this is a truncated version of your defense of how to read Revelation this way. And I would encourage our listeners to pick up the book and take a look at it because it brings Revelation to life in the sense that we can now have, and I'm about to ask you this thing called a Babylonian hermeneutic and understanding what does it mean to live under empire. I think a practical application of the book of Revelation requires us to understand that the description of empire, of Babylon, of the dragon, of all of the characters in this drama are at play today. And not in the sense of like, oh, well, we need to identify the Antichrist, which you deal with that question in the book pretty easily and pretty quickly, actually, (laughs) is we can now identify like, what is Babylon today? What is Babylon doing? How is it? I forgot the word you used earlier about maybe coddling us would be, I don't think that was your word, but you know, how is that happening for us today? Because I think there's a lot of American Christians, especially, and maybe it's not this way around the world, but there are a lot of American Christians who don't really understand that we live in many ways in exile in Babylon. So what does it take to develop what you call in this book, a Babylonian hermeneutic? Yeah. And you're right. That's sort of the heart of the book. And I'm preparing some talks for a church in Oklahoma this weekend. I tell my students, you have to begin reading the book of Revelation in chapter 17 rather than chapter 1 if you under, understand what John's getting at, even in chapter 1 and especially 1 through 3. So that helps to go there. But John provides for us in Revelation 17 through 19, or through most of 19, a graphic depiction of Babylon, Rome as Babylon. I mean, he's taken Rome and flipped it on its head turned it over, turned it inside out, made fun of it, and basically taunted the place by saying, this is what you're really like. And it's graphic exaggerations. It's clever, but at the same time, you know, it's not the kind of language we use in politics today. But he sketches Babylon, and I tell my students, read through these chapters together and tell me what are the major elements of Babylon. And they almost all come up with the same things. It's anti-God. Now, this is the God of Israel, the God of the Christians. It's idolatry. They're full of opulence, the clothing, the food, the enormous stuff coming into the produce coming into Rome. They're murderous in persecution. I'm reading right now Suetonius's The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. I cannot believe how murderous the Roman emperors were. They just killed people who disobeyed. And I mean, we're not talking about two people behind closed doors. We're talking sometimes a thousand people that they just murder. Wow. It was an empire that was filled with itself as an image. And everywhere you went, you were reminded, if you were in Ephesus, if you were in Laodicea, if you were in Hierapolis, it doesn't matter where you are, Athens even, you will be reminded everywhere you go of Rome's impact and control of the world in idols, in gods, in names, in language. So there was an image, a branding type life in the Roman Empire. Militarism is huge. 
every Roman emperor was an emperor because he was an imperator. He was an imperial presence in the military. They gained their standing by victories on the battlefield. It's sort of like if you won the Iraq war, I'm not real good on my war history here, but let's say you're Schwarzenegger, you get to be the president because you won. Hmm. And if you came back into the city as a military victor, you slaughtered the people who would oppose you. So it was a military might. And then there was a powerful economic exploitation dimension to the Roman Empire. And this is so prominent in Revelation chapter 18, over and over, the merchants, the sailors, the pilots there, this is the boats, they are bringing in stuff to the city of Rome so that Rome can consume it. And the emperor Vitellius, most people don't know who he was. He didn't last very long. He had four banquets every day as the emperor. He even had a banquet at breakfast. And he was uh, overweight because of it. Mary Beard makes fun of him. And, of course, the dominant theme, obviously, is that they were arrogant. This is a trope from Babylon. No, I'm a queen. Nobody's going to touch me. I'm the greatest ever. That sort of arrogant narcissism of the Roman emperors breeds a culture that thinks that it's the greatest nation and is entitled to everybody's produce, everybody's land, everybody's money, everybody's women. So these are the marks of Babylon that John is beginning to see felt in the churches, and he wants to purge the churches of these sorts of marks. So then what does he want the churches to do? Like, what role does the church play as Babylon is going to be dominant? Now, how do you live as a faithful follower of Jesus, who is the lamb in the empire, in Rome, in Babylon? That's John's big question. And I would say three words, Doug, sum it up for me. The first is they have to be discerning enough spiritually, mentally, intellectually, however you want to describe it to see the presence of Babylon and what it's doing to the people of God and to, let's say, the culture. What is it doing? So they have to have discernment. The second thing is, for John, one of his favorite terms is that they are a witness. Now, the Greek word martureo, to witness, becomes also the noun martus, a witness. And martus becomes the word martyr in English for the people who give their life. So, a witness for John is someone who sees something and says what he or she saw and is willing to live in accordance with what was seen. Now, the seeing here is to experience. These are people who have experienced Jesus as the Lord, as the Lamb, and they are willing to speak up for him, and they're willing to live with the consequences of what that means to speak up and speak out against the powers. So discernment, witness, and the third one is worship. And this was, for me, one of the most exciting little sideshows for me in reading. I had fun doing this. I learned from Bryant Blount, an African-American New Testament scholar, that in the African-American tradition, the songs of the Book of Revelation are understood in similar ways to the spirituals in the African-American or the Negro tradition. And as a result of this, these songs, there's nine major songs in the book of Revelation from chapters four through the end of the book. Those songs are simultaneously worship songs 
but they are also subversion songs. Because if you sing that the Lamb is now on the throne or that God is in control, you are saying that Caesar is not. And that is an act of subversion. It's an act of resistance. It's the act of a dissident disciple saying, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what happens. So that's sort of John's threefold sermon, (laughs) three-point sermon for how to live the Christian life when you're in the empire. Hi, everyone. This is Norman Horn. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the others in the Christians for Liberty Network such as my own Faith Seeking Freedom podcast, where I take listener-submitted questions about liberty and give brief but engaging answers that you can use and share. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing you content that you will love to learn from, and we appreciate your support. Now let's get back to the show, and I hope you check out the FSF podcast soon. What sort of current things do you worry about with the church as it relates to Babylon? I mean, some of the things that you described there could very well describe Western civilization in a number of ways, even, even oh, yeah. for all of its good. And I think it's also very clear, especially for the group of listeners that you are speaking to on this podcast, that the militarism is just significantly out of control. And there is a sense of arrogance, especially with certain administrations in our presidency, that we have to put America first and all of this. And so there's a very Americanized culture that has sort of washed over a lot of Christian churches in the West, and more specifically, obviously, in America. What do you worry about the most with respect to what has happened, what Babylon has done to influence the church? Yeah, good questions. One of the themes of the book is that Babylon is timeless. Babylon is always with the church. Babylon is not some, just one specific future city. It's not just one past city. It's always present. And I think that we have to have eyes of discernment. And if we study this book carefully, we will be given sort of, it's not cynical, but it's not afraid of critique and criticism either. So I think we see some characteristics in the church today. I think there is a partisanship of some Christians who think the Democrats are the true Christian political party and others who think it's the Republican Party. And I think when we get too narrowly defined, we lose our capacity to have the, let's say, the Babylonian hermeneutic of being able to see when things are off base and when they're on base. And I understand some of what your listeners are into, but because they've been, if I can say this, I may be wrong, because they're more of a minority voice rather than a dominant voice. Is that fair? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, they have the privilege of being able to look at both parties in our system and say they got that wrong, they got that wrong, and they don't have to feel allegiant. So that's one thing. The second thing is that people have become allegiant sometimes so much to America that they aren't allegiant as much to Jesus. And this is a very serious act of idolatry that John would jump up and down and say, didn't you read my book? Mm. This is exactly what I'm getting at. The allegiance thing is prominent. The other thing I would say is the capitalism of America entitlement, where people just feel like they have no responsibility for the nation, for others, is seriously critiqued by John in his very strong critique of economic exploitation. 
So I think those are some of the lessons. Our diminishment of the significance of God in culture, very much along John's line. I see abortion. I see our lack of interest in the prison systems where we can restore mm. people and try to gain freedom for people. Now, not I don't want to release people who are going to make a mess of the United States and start killing people, but I really think there's power used to silence people, to destroy people, to hide people away, rather than the moral fiber of working with people to restore people yep. into society and bring reconciliation. All these things I think John would say, yeah, not ex- not acceptable. Yeah. No, and I think you have an alignment there with a lot of libertarians, especially libertarian Christians. I think the economic exploitation thing would probably need to be fleshed out over many hours of conversation because I think not all, all things are exploitative. Yeah. Well, that's a tough word to say, but you know, you've probably read the book Colossians Remixed. I did read By that. Walsh and Kismet. Yeah. When I was in seminary, we had to read that book. And I want to get your take, not on the book, but on this particular thing that I think there's a lot of Christian critique of either America or capitalism or globalism or whatever it might be. It tends to come from the left that sees this moniker of empire in just about anything they don't like. Yeah. And I remember reading that book. And at the time, I was not quite fully libertarian. And I was just sort of like, I was really into being able to identify systems of oppression. And I still think that's very valuable as a Christian to identify a system of oppression. I mean, I could cite for you all the libertarian ones, right? But I remember reading their book and thinking, hang on, they're just picking the things they don't like happening out there in the world. And they're saying, well, this system for them, it's global capitalism. And in my mind, what they really mean is global consumerism or Keynesian economic-driven capitalism. That's a different topic. But I realized at the time, or identified at the time, we could just pick anything and say, you know what, that's the latest thing that's called empire because it's sort of a system. And Do you see that danger? And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I was not too impressed with Walsh and Keysmat in their Colossians remix. It was fun. It was sexy in a sense. (laughs) And it really got a lot of sales for InterVarsity, and they almost wanted to start a series on it because it was so potent. But, you know, Doug, I look at this as they're social democrats or maybe farther to the left than that. And they believe in a sort of... Well, after reading Romans Disarmed, that's about right. Yeah, that one was... I wasn't crazy about it at all. And then they're more redistributionists and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So they're coming at it from that angle and they see empire then anytime there is accumulation or economic success in a traditional sense, or at least, yeah. 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 I don't know economic theory that well. So I saw them as offering a very typical European Christian critique, and I know they're Canadians, but they had picked it up. I see it in Tom Wright. I used to it a lot. Sure. And I think that there's something to that. I think when they begin to wed it to political systems and they don't know political systems from the inside out, I think that it can get messed up. To counter what I saw going on, I read all of Roger Scruton's books just to become familiar with the other side of this. And I think Roger Scruton has a lot of wisdom that can offer counterbalances in some of this stuff. I don't speak about this kind of stuff because I don't know political theory well sure. enough. I yeah. need to stay in my lane. Sure. But yeah, that's all I have to say about it. Well, it's interesting that you say that because that's very respectful because there are a lot of biblical scholars that 
my team at LCI really admires and appreciates. And we feel like sometimes they don't stay in their lane. And they're very obsessed with all of the empires they can identify, except the one Babylon, Rome, that's literally (laughs) like still in front of us. And, you know, the libertarians are all out there saying the state is Babylon. Well, the Christian ones, at least, are saying the state is Babylon and the state is Rome. Like... (laughs) Yeah. There's a, I mean, we, we have a hat on our, on our website that says Jesus is Lord, but it has Caesar crossed out and Jesus is written over top of it. Yeah. And we understand implicitly that those statements are together. Just to wrap this up, I have two questions. And one is, I can imagine people listening to this conversation being like, well, I already know how to read Revelation. I've got my system. I've got my way of reading it. Is there room for people to say, all right, I think Revelation is about a lot of the future, but still also embrace what you're saying here as a discipleship program? Yes, yes. They avoid the speculation, predictive things and make it about who in the modern world is doing what in the book of Revelation. In other words, if they think the beast out of the land is Putin, then they're speculating and then they're making it a prediction. But if they think Putin fits the bill, that's a good idea. So yes, I do believe that people who have a chastened, humble, let's say, predictive dimension to it, or futuristic a little bit, they can use the book well, the way John wants it to be used. And I've often said that the predictors, the speculators, were wrong every time, but they could have been right had they just calmed down a bit. Mm. They could have said, yes, Stalin is like Antichrist. John himself says there are many Antichrists. Not in the book of Revelation, but in First John. Yeah, sure. So seeing Stalin and Hitler and Mao Zedong and other people as having dimensions of the Antichrist, yes, by all means, as long as we don't make it that this is the one person that fulfills it. Mm. So sort of like the latest iteration. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate this conversation about Revelation. I know you also have a translation of the New Testament coming out soon, I believe in June, called the Second Testament. I wanted to ask you, what are you up to with that translation, and why wasn't Tom Wright's good enough for you? <laughs> okay. I don't know if you've heard the story. So when Tom's translation came out, I got a copy, and I was with Tom in New York City just after it came out. He was having a riot listening to someone talk where he could say, I want to see how I translated that. <laughs> and John Goldingay came out with his Old Testament and they uh-huh. bound them together, these two. Yeah, I have, a, I have that copy. And I thought, when I read Goldingay, I thought, this is not at all the same theory that Tom Wright used. They're right, completely yeah. different. So I was talking to the editor at InterVarsity who published John Goldingay in the United States. And I said, his name was John Boyd. And I said, John, this these two translations don't belong together. They're completely different theories. So what do you think should be done for the New Testament? I said, something along the line of John Goldingay, a more literal, crunchy, less English-sounding translation. Mm-hmm. He said, would you like to do it? And I said, yes. So that was how the contract started. How long ago was that? Because it's been a few years then. I spent two whole years just doing nothing but translating. Oh, wow. Wow. So that was probably four years ago, five years ago. Yeah. I think I did it in 19 is when I began. Yeah. Okay. I think I vaguely heard that story in an interview you did yeah. on a podcast a few years ago or whatever. Do you have any thoughts on Hart's translation? 
Well, I, I do want to say this. I really like Tom Wright's translation. Oh, yeah. My only regret about that is it is not an audiobook form, which I love to listen <laughs> to the scriptures being read. Okay. Now, David Bentley Hart. Because his is pretty rigid. His is pretty yeah. rigid in that direction of what you're describing. He used the word and every time the Greek word Kai shows up. I just couldn't do that to myself. I think we use a period, and that's what and means. A period at the end of a sentence starts out with Kai in the next sentence, so I don't need Kai. Well, I went through that translation very carefully as I was doing mine because I knew there were some similar things. And there are a lot of mistakes made, verses omitted, just kind of odd things. That, and then he's got some translations that I don't agree with. But And then he's been pretty belligerent about some other topics that he's written about. He just yep. kind of... I had it on my shelf to use, but he kind of just turned me off the way he's been mm. doing some things lately. So I think it's an interesting translation. I appreciate your thoughts, and yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading yours. I was investigating the kit. You can actually still, you can get the look inside feature on Amazon right now. And so you can okay. kind of search through some of the text a little bit and get a sense of where you're going with that, which I was having a little bit of fun with last night. But uh, okay. Scott, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Where can people find you online? Well, I have a Substack, So Scott McKnight Substack, And I used to have a blog at Christianity Today, but they're getting rid of the blog. I have a Twitter account, Scott McKnight, one mm-hmm. T and Scott. And Facebook, one T and Scott. Somebody has a bogus site. I shouldn't <laughs> even say this aloud, <laughs> trying to make fun of me or something. Oh, no. I don't look at it. <laughs> So that's what I have. Excellent. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.